Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. I'm enamored with America for many reasons, and one of them is the ability to go into a space, into a bar or a restaurant, and uh, talk to the person next to you and discover the extraordinary path that their life is on. As a stranger to this country, it's one of the many upsides was to be able to walk into a bar, sit at a seat, and have a conversation, if not just with the barman, but with a person to the left or to the right of me. And that's what I did some months ago and met a rather extraordinary woman who had an incredibly atypical story. A story of two found loves, one for an ancient, but also modern religion, but also for the country of which that religion came from, whilst practicing law and trying to right social wrongs. Here is my conversation with Nicole Phillips. Nicole, how predetermined is anyone's life? If someone can be born in the Bay Area and end up being a human rights lawyer, what are the pivot points of your life which has led you to not only to Haiti but also to marrying five Haitian spirits? Well, I think probably in my case, I can't speak for others, but in my case, love had a lot to do with it, uh, which gave me the ability to have compassion for others. I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area by a really, really loving mother who worked two jobs to support me, who focused on education, who said, as a woman, you need to have a secure job so that no man will ever control you, you'll never be dependent on him, and that you will always be able to, um, to have control of your own destination, of where you work, how you live. So I worked super hard in school. My mom raised me to be really focused on school. I was a bit of a nerd. And I had to work hard. I mean, I'm smart, but I'm not one of those really smart people. So I had to work really hard to get decent grades. What's and really smart? Because I think anybody would say, if you're a law professor at the University of California, um, you must be pretty smart. I am an expert at this point. I've been a lawyer for 20 years, so I'm an expert in my field through a lot of hard work and some some chances. I do think that everyone has the capacity 
to become whatever sort of profession they want. I know, though, that life has a lot of barriers, and some of them are societal, um, sort of social, cultural, economic discrimination. I get all that. But in terms of the human person, I think that we all have the capacity. So I'm just another person who has that capacity. So, you, so you're seriously telling me that I could have become, I could have become, if I really wanted to, um, a law professor and work at the University, the Foundation of Aristide in, the, in Port-au-Prince. Little, little me, who's a functioning dys- dyslexic. Uh, without a doubt. I don't even hesitate or need to think about that. You absolutely could have and probably still could. So you're seriously telling me that then professors and law professors aren't, don't have to be that bright then, if I could do it. <laughs> uh, I think you're probably underestimating your intelligence. Okay, I don't think I am, but anyway. So you, you grew up with a single mum. She instilled in you great values of self-reliance, um, of independence, Tell me about those early years when you finished university. I want to understand that jump from then, uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, to to Haiti. So I, I think that when one decides to do international human rights or social justice work, it can be domestically, it can be international. It's all the same. It's, it's a drive that you have inside of you that motivates you to only do sort of service work for others. And that is, it's a bug that sort of bites you. It's a fire in the belly that happens. And and what is that moment in which that happens? And I think for me, uh, you know, there were several of them, but um, one that I can remember is when I was in college and I was reading um, a book um, called Don't Be Afraid Gringo, which is a, a woman, a campesino worker in Honduras who was doing land rights. And she talked about the usefulness of foreign lawyers, in particular from the United States, coming in and helping her with the land struggle. And it was sort of at that, I was living in Mexico at the time, and it was at that moment where I got that fire in my belly and I said, yes, this is it. The excitement that I have for this work that she's doing, any job that I have must mirror it. And so I, when I graduated from law school, became a union labor lawyer. Um, I worked for a, a law firm that represented unions, and I did that for about 10 years, became a partner in that law firm. Um, and I r- resigned as a partner in the law firm. I actually sort of turned down the partnership and decided that I wanted to focus more on international human rights work. Um, and so at that moment, the law school where I had gone, University of San Francisco, the dean offered me a position with them to oversee a research project with an organization in Haiti. And I, I barely knew where Haiti was, to be honest. Um, I didn't know that it shared the island with the, with them, the Dominican Republic. I didn't know its history. But I spoke French and I was interested in international human rights and I had some background in it. And so I said yes. And that sort of started uh, this course of I, I worked with the law school for about four years um, and, and decided that I wanted to do work for that organization that I was working with. Um, and were, you, were you giving up anything 
in in the US, and I think at the I think you said also at the time you were also down in Mexico. Were you consciously giving up anything, not only just to dedicate um, your energies to Haiti, but also to potentially to go and live there? Uh, well, sure. I mean, when I was a partner in a law firm, I had uh, we were still workers' rights, so we weren't, you know, comparatively to other lawyer, corporate lawyers, huge salaries, but it was a very, very comfortable living and mm-hmm. security. So I I gave up all of that. I had a nice travel budget. You know, I gave up health benefits. I when I did the move to to start working in Haiti full time, I had no salary. Um, for almost a year and then had half sal. Anyway, so certainly there was a financial cut, which I think happens to anyone who does this work. Um, there also is the unknown. I think I was about 38 or so when I decided to, to, to live in Haiti. And, um, that's a pretty big change for somebody who's for really any age, but just certainly at 38, you have certain standards of living that you're used to. So when I moved there, our apartment most of the time didn't have electricity, often didn't have running water, had mice, had cockroaches, there were sort of part of it. And, and what was the most challenging was it was right after the earthquake of January 2010 when I started living there. And there were uh, about over a million people were displaced by the earthquake. And so we had displacement camps, sort of what we would think of as refugee camps, but they were internal displacement of homeless people living all Mm -hmm. around and so desperate um, for money. And so that was also the biggest shift. What I needed to to get used to was living in constant face to face with with poverty and and, and desperation. Why why is Haiti so poor in, in your opinion? I think we all have an opinion that we only ever hear about Haiti when something goes wrong and invariably it's um, an earthquake or, or some kind of natural disaster. And then we see these images of Port-au-Prince and it feels not even like Africa. It feels like Africa of our, the Africa of our past. We're not talking about um, images of uh, Nairobi with its shopping malls and and gated communities, or even thrusting Lagos. This is the Africa of our prejudice. Why is Haiti, in your opinion, at the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Well, this is certainly a complicated question, but a, you know, uh, an important one, and it's it's a complicated answer. Probably, I think probably it started back when Haiti was the first slave revolt that ended in the first independent black nation in the world in 1804. This was about 60 years, at least three generations, before slavery was considered illegal under the Emancipation Proclamation by President Lincoln in the United States. So for 60 years, Haiti um, had abolished slavery, was independent from the French, and was a threat to all slave-owning countries that existed in the rest of the world. And so as a result, they were punished by the United States, France, Britain, Canada, who promised to 
attack them and sort of reoccupy them at any point. They levied a significant debt of, that was at the time 150 million francs, which today with interest paid is about 150, um, uh, is about, sorry, excuse me, $21 billion. And this debt that they levied on, on Haiti starting in the 1820s was for their last chattel, their lost property, which most of which was slaves. So France made Haiti pay for their law, their freedom, their freedom of humans. Um, and so this debt wasn't paid off until the 1940s at exorbitant interest rates. That meant that as Haiti was developing in the 19th and 20th century, that they were spending more than they were earning. There also was embargoes, trade embargoes. Haiti was the jewel um, of the Caribbean, the, the second wealthiest colony in the New World right after the United States. And so as soon as there was an embargo against them because they had the audacity to declare freedom against slavery, they uh, the embargo crippled their economy. Um, and as did the repayments of this loan. So they never were able to make the investments in public infrastructures like schools um, and, and public buildings that, uh, that the rest of the world was able to make. If you fast forward then into the 20th century, when the United States did this sort of new imperialism um, and started taking over colonies like Puerto Rico, they tried Cuba, all over, they tried Haiti and actually occupied Haiti um, for about 15 years. Um, they stole a lot of the reserves of gold in Haiti's bank um, and tried to tried to own all of its land. Um, and then fast forward to the dictatorship of 30 years, the Duvaliers, Papa Doc and Baby Doc, Francois and Jean-Claude Duvalier. And in that time, the United States was propping up these dictators and paying them, giving them funds to operate their business that killed tens of thousands of people in one of the worst dictatorships of the 20th century. Why did we do that? Because there was a Cold War and we wanted to control them. So this legacy of interference by the international community has left a country that has a very weak and corrupt political system economy that's almost non-existent. Um, it's, it's operated as sort of this kleptocracy and instability. And that is what causes the poverty. When you look at the earthquake of January 2010, it was the same earthquake that I survived in magnitude of a 7.0 that I survived in San Francisco in 1989 that killed a few hundred people. And in Haiti, it killed over 200,000 people. So it's not Mother Nature that's killing people in Haiti. It's the poverty and it's the lack of, of government structure. Take us back to 2010, I think it was, when you've not only decided that you need to do human rights um, law, but you've decided to go to Haiti. Um, tell us about that first day, that first week, those first impressions of being in somewhere which is extremely different from your native Bay Area? Well, when I, arrived, I first arrived in Haiti around May 1st of 2010, so it was a couple months after the earthquake, the, con the city of Port-au-Prince 
was had rub piles of rubble everywhere. You couldn't pass very easily on roads. There still were close to a million people live uh, close to a million people living in the streets under tarps and tents. The population of Port-au-Prince is 3 million, so it's about a third of its people. People were afraid to sleep in structures. They were afraid of, of other earthquakes. They were afraid that the buildings were going to fall. They didn't quite understand what had happened with the earthquake. Nobody had remembered ever experiencing an earthquake before. And so it, it was a state of confusion and desperation. The internal displacement camps where people were living, which were everywhere around the city, were dangerous. They didn't have clean water. They didn't have bathrooms where people could go. The, the aid community that came by the hundreds to assist people, the doctors had done a wonderful job in the aftermath of, of helping people, but the, the lingering giving of food, etc., people were not receiving the assistance that they needed and weren't complaining. So when I arrived there, I was working at a a public interest law firm called the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, International Lawyers Office. And we had a displacement camp that was really close. Well, it was everywhere, but there was a huge one of 30,000 people close to us. And we had grassroots partners that we worked with for, for years. And most of their leaders, particularly the women's organizations, were living in these camps, were complaining of conditions and of sexual assaults that were happening daily in the camps. So when I arrived, this is the scene I arrived to. Um, we were, the hotels weren't really open yet. So I was sleeping in a tent in our parking lot on concrete of this, um, of our law firm. And by 6 a.m., people were lining up to talk to us, to talk to me as a foreigner, hoping that I'd be able to help them. And of course, I'm just a lawyer with a laptop that didn't even have access to the internet. Um, there wasn't a lot I could do about the humanitarian situation. Um, so a lot of that time was spent listening, listening, listening. Um, the project that I was sent there down to do was that forced evictions were happening in the displacement camps. People mm -hmm. were getting sick of, of um, people living on their school sites, in the middle of highways, on medians, on private land. They wanted their land back. And so they were using violence in order to scare, terrorize, and evict people. So that I was meeting with people that um, had lost family members, were being terrorized in the evenings in order to leave their camps and trying to figure out a strategy, a national, international campaign to, to stop these evictions and also to, to force the government to relocate people into safer areas. Um, I guess the only thing I'll add, Anything else I'll add was that when I got back from this trip, I went and saw a doctor um, and she said that my body was still in shock. She said that um, the way my nervous system was running and my body that I, you know, a few days after I'd gotten back from my two weeks in Haiti from this initial visit, that I was in a state of shock. So you started working for the Institute of Justice and Democracy in Haiti. But how difficult is it to shake the impression that you're just not just another gringo, you know, somebody coming to, um, to help the poor, benighted Haitians? 
Well, of course, it's always possible that we're blinded by our ego. So I may, in fact, be that gringo. Um, but I listen to my Haitian colleagues and sort of try and take direction from them. And I do the best I can to assure that I'm doing the best work that I can. Um, one of the the most organic feeling positions that I have is, is as a law professor um, in Haiti. That seems, you know, law schools around the country, the United States, and I'm sure around the world have visiting professors from other countries. I think that the exchange of ideas and different concepts and stuff is always important. So that feels like a really good fit. When I was working at the law firm, um, the BAI, our managing partner, Mario Joseph, was really, really difficult to work with at times, but also very good about pushing back on foreigners and our natural proclivities for wanting things to get done as quickly as possible and in sort of the way that we've been taught and pushed back against it and gave me an amazing education on how I can tread lightly and support people without imposing my own education and ideas of how things should be to really listen. And so I, I feel very lucky to have worked with him for so long and to really have that level of awareness is sort of all I, you know, what I try and aspire to is constantly aware of what is my presence, how is this changing the dynamic in the relationship, um, and to try and support lawyers, but also have them request to me what it is they think they want me to do, how I can be helpful as opposed to me coming up with the ideas and saying, this is what I think I should do and spending my money where I want it, where I think it should go. I wait until people ask me what they think, um, where I can help and what I can do. And, and quite frankly, most of my work in Haiti over those eight years was leading international campaigns. So Haitian lawyers, they do all of the arguing in Haitian court. That's, that's not for me to do. Um, but what I do is when the U.S. Congress issues terrible policies in Haiti, when USAID is, is <laughs> wreaking havoc without accountability, um, when the United Nations or the Organization of American States, when they have policy decisions that they can make, then I would be leading those campaigns and trying to educate the international community. You've been in Haiti for, for eight years. You've obviously grown not only to know it, but to love it. Um, let's deal with the professional first, and then let's go on to the personal. Um, give, us, give, us the, give us two accomplishments which you're most proud of in your time being in Haiti. Um, well, one is that there was a... Um, a displacement camp back to that project that I was working with was trying to stop forced evictions. There was a displacement camp called Grace Village that was named after a Haitian minister that was being supported from money from churches around the United States. And he had one of the worst displacement camps that I visited. It was, uh, it had sort of fences all around it. He wasn't allowing aid to come into the camp. 
and the people within there was thousands of people living there you know half of the people living there were children and there were rocks and things thrown um, at nighttime to terrify the people to try and scare them to leave in the meantime though to the congregations in the united states that he would visit and ask for money he talked about what a saint he was for helping people affected by the earthquake so the contradiction there the hypocrisy was abhorrent and so the community organized and we filed a lawsuit with the Inter-American Commission Human Rights, which is a body of the Organization of American States, the human rights accountability arm of that, that Haiti is a member, as is the United States. And we, we said that these forced evictions needed to stop and that people needed to be relocated in safe places. And we won. Um, we also did a bit of a, um, a campaign against the pastor, um, but we won and the evictions did stop. And with the assistance of the government and the USAID project, the people were given money and were relocated to safer places. It wasn't ideal. If I had been drafting the plan, they would have been a lot, you know, they would have had a lot more money. And But I think it was a good, um, I think that was a, a good solution for those people. And it really came out of their hard work they were so well-spoken and so patient with journalists and members of the international community coming out that it allowed us to have the lawyers to sort of come in and, and do their work and, and get this, this victory for them. Um, another victory would be the case of the prosecution of Jean-Claude Duvalier, who, along with his father, was a dictator. Um, he and his father ruled Haiti for about 30 years. And he himself took office at the age of 19 when his father died and he went into exile in France in 1986. He came back to Haiti in 2011 and our office assisted in arresting him, filing criminal complaints and uh, in prosecuting him. The president at the time, Michel Martelly, was a Duvalier, meaning his support came from Duvalier supporters. So he fired prosecutors, fired judges in order to um, make sure that this guy was not prosecuted. But we uh, we were bigger than him and we were able to get this case before the appellate court. The appellate court summoned him and forced him to testify um, before. Of course, it was it was televised by international and national media. We summoned people from Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the BBC. It was covered by everyone. Um, and, you know, I was tweeting from the courtroom, et cetera. And the appellate court overturned, used international legal arguments um, that our partners provided the American court in an amicus brief, which to my knowledge has never actually been submitted in Haiti before. Um, but uh, we, we submitted an amicus brief signed on by, I think it was around 20 or so international organizations and law schools from, from around the world. And um, they re the appellate court reinstated the case against Jean-Claude Duvalier um, and, and remanded it to the trial court to be, um, to be prosecuted. And so that was a really exciting victory. Jean-Claude um, Jean Duvalier died 
um, shortly afterwards. So there never uh, was a trial against him. But the fact that he was forced to go to the court and and testify was uh, through a packed courtroom was really um, a victorious moment. It occurred to me that what I've done is to reduce Haiti to the Haiti of our dystopian dreams. Um, what are Haitian people like? I didn't ask you about the people. I asked you about the place. Because you've obviously fallen in love, not just with the work, but with the people. So tell us about Haitian people. Well, of course, it's hard to generalize, right? And I'm a foreigner. Oh, so it, it's easy. It's easy. Come on. This is a glib um, interview. Um on a podcast. No, I know it's not easy, but there must be general characteristics of of the people that you've come uh, come to know and love. That you know, you're not anywhere for for eight years purely for professional reasons. You develop a love for the culture, the food, uh, the religions, the the smells, the the sights, and. And that's what I really want to um, pivot to on the next part of our interview, because I know that you married not one, not two, not three, not even four, but five Haitian spirits. And that doesn't come from just being a human rights activist. That's because that's a, somebody who loves and embraces the culture. So we need to understand that. Right. Well, so take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. This is just my perspective. Um, mm hmm. But um, so my perspective is that Haitian people that, that I've sort of interacted with at the levels that I've interacted with them, one of the things that I respect, there's two things that I respect the most about them, or maybe even three things. One is their resistance, that, that um, fervor that, um, I mean, imagine being enslaved for 300 years with absolutely no hope it's all you've ever known it's all your ancestors have ever known 300 i mean i've been under the trump administration now for two years and i can't imagine how we're possibly going to get out from underneath this imagine 300 years of slavery and having the courage to rise up and do what no other slave nation has ever done and beat down your oppressors. And of course, they were assisted with Haitian spirits, but we'll get to that later. That resistance, that unwillingness to accept um, the in, in, in inequality and the violence is what is still within the Haitian people today. Um, people have, it's interesting, there's a nationalism and people can be, can have big, big conflicts over President Aristide or various different political issues. But in the end of the day, um, they all are resistant to international imperialism. All of them, whether you're from the right or from you're from the left, you may be profiting from it, but you're sort of doing it despite them in order to benefit yourself. But you are against it. You're raging against the machine. Um, and that made it for me so inspiring to live there and difficult to live there because, of course, I'm, your listeners don't know, but I, you know, I'm white. And so uh, I stand out. And in the communities where I hang out in, I'm often the only white person in the room. 
And so I would imagine with this resistance that there would be sort of this immediate antagonism against me. And to my surprise, the second thing <laughs> that I love so much about Haitians is that they're also just fair. They they judged me based on me. Did I speak the language Haitian Creole? Okay, then I'm okay. Did I how did I view myself? Was I willing was I smiling to them? Was I open? Did I know about Haiti? Was I did I act and they really judged me based on me. And once um, most people, once they sort of spoke to me and realized the work that I was doing there um, and sort of how I, I lived were so welcoming. I mean, beyond welcoming. Obviously, I had, for, for a population that is so, um, where jobs are so scarce, it was clear that I was gainfully employed in their country. And I, you know, crime almost never happened to me. People, you know, um, I just was surprised at how safe I felt among people and that people protected me and watched over me as if I was one of them. I sort of felt like, you know, the animal videos where it's like the mother cat takes in a squirrel. And I felt like a squirrel that was able to feed on, on the mom cat, just like her other kittens. I've, I've never felt such community and love um, and safe, ironically, safeness when you're in a crowd of people that are looking after each other. I mean, Haitians don't have the police. They don't have the state to protect them. They protect each other based on their community, their families, their neighbors, who they know. And when you're part of that, um, which, of course, you know, I was never 100 you know, I wasn't 100 percent part of that. It's not my birth parents, but I, I was certainly accepted. And it's a pretty amazing feeling. Um, and I think the other thing is just this sense of, of, of joy, um, which, which people have. You know, when I would go into these displacement camps after the earthquake that were smelled awful, the stories were awful, um, they were hot, and people didn't have water and food. I mean, it's just sort of the worst conditions that humanity can face. By 5 p.m., there still was, the music started, kids started dancing. Um, there still was a joie de vivre, right? Like a, um, um, a joy that was circulating that most people were able to feel, if only for moments of the time. And that's, that's the resilience that people talk about with Haitians. Um, and it's, it really is, is, is beautiful. And I guess the last, and there's so many things, but I guess the last thing is just this, this wise, this wisdom that Haitian have. Um, there, there's just in order to, to, to not have a stable economy and to not have a government that will protect you, imagine making a living and figuring out the system and feeding your family and, and people that do that day in and day out with all the uncertainties and the cards stacked against you. It's, it's an incredible intelligence and wisdom that people have. Um, that I, I learn from all the time and I'm just amazed by every single day. We don't know, um, in the West, in whether it's in America or Britain, too many famous Haitians, but there is one, Wycliffe Jean, who was big some time ago, but his name still has somewhat of an echo, a resonance. He ran to be president 
or at least he wanted to become president. And I, w- I was vaguely aware of this when you picked this as your piece of music. Tell us about Wycliffe John's run to try and become Haitian president and also then end up by telling us why you decided to choose this piece of music as your, mu- as your music on today's show. I've, I've respected Wycliffe Jean and absolutely loved him when he was with the Fugees. Uh, I'm not very music savvy, so I had not followed his career after the, the Fugees. But when I got to Haiti, I had heard that he was hoping to put his hat in the, his, sorry, his name in the hat to run for president. This was in 2010. The elections, the first set of elections were in November and the earthquake had been in January earlier that year. So it was is right afterwards. And he had a nonprofit organization that was doing humanitarian work. I would sometimes see him and or people wearing T-shirts with the name of his organization operating in displacement camps. And he people hadn't heard of him that much in Haiti, a little bit, but his his music had largely been in English. And so I think a lot of Haitian youth weren't really familiar with it. But he was starting to make a name for himself. He was excluded by the Electoral Council to run for elections. And the reason was because there's a provision in the Constitution that states that you had to have lived. You can't be a citizen of another country. You can only be a citizen of Haiti. And you had to have lived the last five years um, in Haiti. And he clearly had not, at least based on the evidence that I saw. And so he was disqualified. But he did not take that well, and he made a big scene around it and said that it was unfair for him to be disqualified, etc. So I was writing an op-ed at the time. I forgot where it went. It might have gone to the Miami Herald that was a commentary on the elections and and sort of the U.S. government's heavy hand, heavy unfair hand in the elections. And I was thinking about the disqualification of, of Wycliffe, which my legal opinion was 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 correct, one of the few things that the Electoral Council got right. And so I was listening to a song um, that Wycliffe had, had put together sort of seemingly overnight about his disqualification, the unfairness in the elections. And I was angry at sort of the corruption within the Haitian government and him. And then I listened to the song and was reminded about how damn talented this man was. And I instantly loved this song. And I think it represents Haiti really well, because there are so many um, in, um, complicated issues within Haiti, where you love something and hate something all at the same time. Um, so so this is a song I recommended for you, which it sounds like he has translated it into English and put it into a lovely uh, video. My generation like we okay As long as we got music, we gon' dance all day He gon' vote, tell us when she gon' vote, Kanye Yeah, yeah, election time is coming Come on. We okay As long as we got music, we gon' party all day She gon' vote, you too, he gon' vote, cool Play, 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 election time is coming Come on, come on Immigration, socialism, capitalism, racism Healthcare, welfare, seems like nobody Small business taxation, unemployment, education, my generation. Build the space station so when you do a hurt, you can see all the Haitians as they rebuild their nation. With fair trade, everybody trade, you trade, I trade, and everybody get paid. Election time around the corner, who you gon' vote for? Election time around the corner, what you gon' fight for? Election time around the corner, who you gon' vote for? 
feeling? Do you want peace or war? Alternative energy or oil in your SUV? Tell me what you're looking for. We about to have a poll. Gun control, infrastructure, agriculture, manufacture, hip hop, be my culture. Tell me what you think about it. Technology and foreign policy. I need to bail out money to stimulate the economy. Raise on family values. My life be my testament. King had a dream and you two can be the president. Election time around the corner. Who you gon' vote for? Election time around the corner. What you gon' fight for? Election time around the corner. Who you gon' vote for? Election time is coming. Do you want peace or war? But the kids like we are. As long as we got music, we gon' dance all day. He gon' vote, tell us who she gon' vote, Kanye. Yeah, yeah. Election time is coming, but the kids like we are. As long as we got music, we gon' party all day. She gon' vote, you too. He gon' vote, Kanye. Yeah, I know election time is almost here. Why don't you kick some of that stuff I grew up on? You know what I'm talking about? I got you, yeah. Ramps was a voodoo priest. Dad was a preacher. Uncle was a mason. I was raised Christian. Best friend Muslim. Al-Salam alaikum. My manager was Jewish. He taught me Shabbat Shalom. Flatbush rosters. Taught me the scriptures. Haile Selassie. Marcus Gaul. St. Lovitcher. Haitian Revolution. Napoleon's army got spanked by them Haitians. Tucson, St. John with the info Did you know that a Haitian found in Chicago? If I was president, the first thing I would do is get my people out their tents My generation like we are As long as we got music, we gon' dance all day He gon' vote, tell us who she gon' vote, Kanye Yeah, yeah, election time is coming But the kids like we are As long as we got music, we gon' party all day She gon' vote In your last answer, you mentioned a very Haitian trait of hating something and loving something in the equal measure. How many times did you fall in love in Haiti? Oh, every day, multiple times a day. With smiles, people's smiles, I fall in love with people's smiles. Every day. Haitian smile. I get the sense, definitely from you, that they're the, you know, that joy of life. Um, you mentioned that before. How easy is it when you are foreign, you are different, um, to romantically um, embrace yourself into a culture which, at least on the face of it, is going to seem so so different, so much poorer in material terms, not in spiritual terms, than the one that you know. Are you, as an expat lawyer, an expat professional, primarily hanging out with 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 people like yourself, that people who are maybe American, um, or maybe other lawyers from from uh, from around the world? Um, how does the socialization work? before you fall in love with a Haitian and their smile? It's funny, this reminds me of, I think it could be Kurjif, but I think it's a Rumi poem that talks about, uh, we think that we're looking, 
we're waiting for God to speak to us. And it's actually God that's waiting for us to speak to her. And I think that sort of summarizes what it's like, was like for me to be a foreigner in Haiti. I felt separate. I felt different. I didn't speak Creole when I first got there. I spoke French, but most people understand some French, but really feel comfortable in Creole. And some don't even understand French at all. And so I just felt so different. And when I, it was, it's piece by piece. I mean, it took me many, many, many years to sort of get through this on my own, which is my own ego issues. Um, when I first sort of realized that I wasn't separate and started to integrate more, I realized how open and welcoming and wonderful and that all that separation had been my own head, not in Haitians' heads themselves. A little bit. There's a little bit of that. But in general, people are so open and warm and welcoming and excited to get to know you. Um, and of course there's going to be some awkward cultural issues, but then you just, we, they get over that in us and we get over that in them. And that's what the, the joy is. That's where the, where you learn, um, about it. There is of course a huge community of expats. I think a lot of the humanitarian workers in particular that came to Haiti after the earthquake had been to maybe two or three or 12 countries before that. Um, they maybe didn't speak Creole or didn't speak it very well. They may not even have spoken French. So they weren't able to communicate with Haitians. There was, especially in that time, so much misery on the streets that it's easy for people to just sort of want to turn your head, not to be able to be ensconced in it 24 seven. You know, we, we live in our own expat housing situations where the standards are probably going to be higher than most what most Haitians live in, although certainly there is a wealthy sector within Haiti, you know, of Haitians themselves, the, the bourgeoisie. Um, but of course, when you go into restaurants, there are, we call them the blanc restaurants. Blanc is, is what you describe as like gringo or foreigner, but it technically means white, white people. And so, yeah, there's where blanc hang out. Um, and, and a lot of Haitians will see that, oh, that's where, that's where the blanc hang out. And, kind of generalize us because of that, understandably. Um, and I think it's up to us, you know, we can live that way. And I think a lot of people live happily that way. Um, but there's other options, right? There's options of integrating more in. And there's a lot of people that feel comfortable and in, integrate more with the bourgeoisie, um, going to the clubs and restaurants and stuff that, that the bourgeois go to, which, you know, which can be fun. I've certainly done that. And then there's figure, you know, also integrating for me, it was through dance classes. Um, I took dance classes and danced, uh, went dancing, like what they call it, Latin dance, like salsa and stuff. And then that will give you just access to, you know, middle class. Um, it was through my work. I worked with all Haitians. Often I was the only foreigner in the office. So that was a great way to integrate. I also had a boyfriend and his family and his community and that allowed me to to integrate as well as sort of within the voodoo community there so which came first uh the boyfriend or the love of haitian voodoo the boyfriend tell us about the boyfriend what did he do how did you meet 
<laughs> um, we met on the dance floor. He was, he's, in my opinion, he's Haiti's best salsa dancer. Um, and I've danced with a lot of people and he's extraordinary. So we met on the dance floor and he became my dance teacher and, um, things sort of happened from, from there romantically. Were there Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Any peculiarities, um, anything which you found has been different about maybe... Um, having a romantic relationship in Haiti because I've I've not travelled to a culture wildly dissimilar from my own host one. So I'm English. I'm a Brummie. I'm, I'm from Birmingham. Sorry. Um, then I've dated in London and a, a tiny. Then some in San, San Francisco, and within these fundamentally very similar cultures, there are nuance differences but the nuance differences you know i can uh, go from one country to another and it fundamentally looks like dating that 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 i know and um and recognize are there any differences between you know being in a romantic relationship in haiti for somebody who was born in san francisco yeah, and well, certainly my experience dating in Haiti is going to be different than the experience of a Haitian woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the is things, that because you're foreign or because you're white? All of the above. It's going to be because I'm foreign, because I'm white, and I'm perceived to have resources to be wealthier, and probably because of, of education levels as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a really interesting anthropological story that I, or book that I read talks about in sort of the poorer areas, sort of peasant areas, um, or urban poor even areas of Haiti, that relationships are based a little bit on love, maybe sort of that spark and that love or lust at the beginning, but mostly it's a business relationship based on the financial financials, based on economics. It's based on does the woman calculate that she is going to be able, that he will help her survive economically. Is it a good idea to have a baby with him? Will he give her money for that? Um, will he be able to support the family? She needs to leave her family because they can't afford her anymore. She can't get work. And so she's looking to a man to support her and her babies. Um, it's common to have babies with more than one, one man. Um, it's common for the man to not stick around for him to have more than one woman at the same time. So this is sort of the backdrop. Um, I had, you know, I lived there for many years without having a relationship in Haiti, in part because at various times I had relationships sort of back in the States that were long distance but also because it seemed really complicated and I wanted to make sure that I was able to do it as ethically 
um, as possible, knowing that the, it just really had to be in a relationship of, um, of equality. And so when I had met, um, my boyfriend at the time, it, it really felt like a, a relationship of equality because he was a dance teacher and I was a dance student, but he was also a law student and I was a law professor. He was very educated. He was extremely intelligent. And so it felt in my eyes like an equal relationship. Our economics, however, were different. Um, and to me, that didn't matter. But I think as a foreigner operating there, um, it had tremendous consequences, not just for him. I mean, if he's able to put that aside, it has enormous consequences for our community. He would talk all the time about how anytime he would see one of his friends, they often would ask, how's your blanc? How's your, how's your white lady, basically? How is she? And then they would start to ask him for money because he was dating me. They would see him differently. Um, we had to choose where we would want to live. We couldn't live in sort of his more popular neighborhood because I would be the only foreigner living there. And that could be, produce safety issues for him, his family, and for me as well. Um, and it's a tremendous, it's tremendous to get over these. Even if I get over this, for him to have to get over feeling like he's sort of a kept man. Um, when hey, you know, Haitian men, it's a very machismo culture, like the rest of sort of Latin America and the Caribbean. And so um, there were awkward moments within that that made it a, a very difficult relationship in, in many ways. And it also made when you overcome that, when you transcend that, it's it's absolute um, freedom and amazing. So. So there are equal, you know, beautiful moments as well. So there are there were a lot of difficulties um, with the relationship because of sort of those cultural barriers, um, but also there were just as many wonderful moments because when you transcend the cultural, societal, economic differences and you just see two people who love each other and you just see that and you can work beyond it, it's truly magic. I mean, we also had some some truly so you're in a relationship, um, not without its problems, but all relationships have them. And then you decide that you need to immerse yourself further into Haitian culture by taking on Haitian voodoo. And in April, you married five Haitian spirits. What led you to, to April? Well, one of the things that is also common in, in Haitian relationships is that men will have more than one partner. So he will have a primary partner. He might be married to her. He might not. And then he'll often have a girlfriend and often even what they call tizami, like sort of lovers from that. That was a structure that wasn't working for me. Um, and so I was asking him about this. I was sort of realizing this months and months into the relationship and, and asking him about this. And he knew that if he came on, if he was honest with me, that I, there was a good chance I was going to leave him. And so he was lying about it. So our, our relationship sort of 
disintegrated into this this difficult moment. Um, and we had um, been practicing voodoo together. He sort of came to it when I came to it as well. When you don't have a state that can intervene, when you don't have a justice system that is very strong, when terrible things happen to you, or even when medical issues happen to you and there aren't very good doctors available that you can afford, you turn when you're in Haiti, you often turn to voodoo priests and priestesses. So in this case, we had been victims of, of violence, of threat. And so our car, he was hijacked, driving our car, carjacked, um, and had a gun pointed to him and was absolutely terrified. So we went to a Haitian priest together. They called an Ugan. A male is called an Ugan. A female is called a Mambo. So we went to an Ugan and started getting into voodoo that way. So it was it was sort of at um, the same time. Um, fast forward a few months, and as this relationship was disintegrating, and I was trying to leave him, um, I was asking lots of questions about the relationship and I reached out to a mambo, a Haitian priestess on my own. And she revealed to me that in order to, to keep me, that my boyfriend was using um, voodoo magic against me and that his girlfriend, um, this was the first time I was able to confirm that he actually had a girlfriend. Um, she wanted to destroy me. So she was, was using voodoo magic against me as well. And, that this was describing, explaining why I had lost a considerable amount of weight. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was crying every day. It was sort of um, in the Mambo's mind what was um, explaining all of this. Some people are going to be somewhat skeptical about voodoo, seen as magical, hocus-pocus, and, and it's purely... And they might say, well, okay, it wasn't that she uh, was deploying any real um, voodoo against you. It was quite simply, you were worried about the relationship, maybe, and you were stressing about that, or maybe you had some other ailment or malady. Um, tell us and explain why these skeptics might be wrong, why Haitian magic is real. Well, I, you know, I have a lawyer analytical brain and I'm not somebody who's ever had, um, I don't know, seen ghosts or wh whatever it is. You know, there, there are those people that we all know that have these mystical experiences all the time. And, and that hasn't been me. So I didn't even search out voodoo free. I was fascinated by it, but I was like, no, you got to get an invitation. Like you can't just, um, you know, you've, you've got to be invited to this. So um, I think one of the first things is that I, I think I was probably called to it when I was. Um, and so when I first started going to ceremonies and I would see maybe a relative, the brother of my boyfriend at the time or others, the, the, the practice of the religion is in ceremonies, a spirit, what they call mount, the head will go into the, will possess the human, for example, my old boyfriend's um, brother. And then it's no longer the brother that's speaking, it's the spirit that's speaking through the human and speaking to us and giving us prescription of what we should do and explaining things and telling us to do particular practices and stuff. And I was very skeptical when I first, first, you know, I didn't trust anybody. 
Um, and I didn't understand the religion at all. And I hadn't read anything about it. Um, all the transmission was oral. And so it was eventually when I saw enough of this possession of spirits to humans, when I realized there's no way that these people are all acting. There's just no way. Um, and so uh, it was in that moment where you have to first make the first assumption and say, okay, this is real. And then when you look out to other indigenous cultures, because the spirits, Haitian spirits come from the motherland. They come from what's now Benin and Nigeria um, and different places. And also from the indigenous culture, the Tainos that, that, that lived in Haiti before Haitians got there. That's where the spirits are coming from. So this is an indigenous, largely an indigenous religion and that when you look to other indigenous religions the spirit possession and relationship with spirits is quite um common so once i got to, to understand that that it was sort of me who had the problem that didn't believe in this and that this was actually a thing that i just hadn't been exposed to in my little primitive life in san francisco um then then it opened up a whole a whole world to me hmm. it's opened up a whole world to you and it's a world which um, you're currently away from at the moment. So you're in San Francisco at the moment. When will you be back in Haiti? Uh, in July. Although the spirit world, you're never away from. <laughs> the spirits are with you wherever you are. Um, but I, I will certainly I do feel them more strongly when I'm in Haiti. Um, and I feel more in flow with them. Um, and I will be back, be back in July. And just be, just before you finish up, because you just alluded to the fact that you do take your love and immersion and understanding of Haitian uh, religions, with Haitian religion, I should say, singular, uh, with you when you come back in the Bay Area. So how do you manage to keep up with your religion's observance whilst you're back, back home? So I, I seek out anybody else who's a voodoo practitioner. And my, my Haitian folklore dance teacher is a mambo. She's a, a Haitian priestess. Um, and then there's a, a drummer that also that drums for our, our classes. And he's a Haitian ugan. So he's also a priest. So part of its community, which is similar to Buddhism or, or Hinduism, which is sangha or satsang, that's really important. So I've, I've got that as much as I can. Um, I have an altar in my home that, um, more, you know, that has representations and for for the for the spirits. I also observe on. I have I have wedding rings from my marriage. So there's a ring that represents the, the spirits that I've married that I wear all the time. And then there are certain days where you observe the spirits, and that's my way of sort of serving um, and honoring the spirits. Nicole Phillips, thank you for coming on to Friday and explaining how a woman from a single parent family in the Bay Area can end up being immersed, loving, appreciating and doing good in Haiti. Thank you. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.